Yahweh is exalted. Yahweh saves. He's holy. There is no one like him. He's the rock. He's all-knowing. He's sovereign over life and death, but he's sovereign over riches and poverty. He's, in fact, sovereign over all of creation. He sees and he blesses the poor. He guards the righteous. He judges the wicked. And he strengthens and blesses his people. Listening to a special message preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, or to learn more about Jesus, visit thisisshoreline.com. Amen. Well, let's uh, open our Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Samuel. Book of 1 Samuel. Again, we want to say this morning, Happy Mother's Day, moms. We love you. We celebrate you. We're thankful for you. Um, have a little, I guess, a joke for you if your kids ever try this with you, moms. Um, someone told me this today that a daughter asked her mom, What's it like to have the greatest daughter in the world? And uh, without missing a beat, the snarky mom said, I don't know. You have to ask grandma. <laughs> so, so there you go, moms. You can use that. Well, on a special day like Mother's Day, we want to break from our exposition of Romans and look at something unique that we wouldn't normally be studying through. And this morning, I want to draw our attention to something that happened to one of the greatest prophets in all of Israel, but it's not exactly about him. And because it's Mother's Day, I want to draw our attention to the prophet's mother. And three things we're going to look at today from Samuel's mother, Hannah. So 1 Samuel chapter 1. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive into our text. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask now that you would illuminate this text, teach us, apply it by your spirit, bring encouragement, exhortation, and comfort. Challenge us, Lord, and we pray most of all that we'd be equipped by the Holy Spirit to really ultimately please you, to obey you, and Lord, to be the people you've called us to be. We thank you, Lord, for your work through your word in your way. And we ask, Lord, now that you'd speak to us through the teaching of your word. It's in Christ's name we all together pray and say amen. Amen. Well, the book of 1 Samuel is set in the context of a time of great turmoil. So God had brought the people out of Egypt. The nation of Israel had descended from the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and they had now entered into the land of Israel. They had for hundreds of years been governed by God himself. They'd received the law. And sadly, for a long season, and you could call it a circular season, a cyclical time frame, Israel would begin to sin, and then they would begin to be oppressed by outsiders. And then God would, in their prayers, in their agony, God would raise up a judge who would defend Israel, and then they'd have a relative time of peace, and in that time of peace, they would begin to get lax and sin, and then this cycle just continued to repeat. And ultimately, the book of Judges closes with a scathing indictment of the nation of Israel. And this is eerily familiar to where our Western culture, and specifically our nation, is today. Notice on the screen the context spiritually of the time. Judges 21-25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel... Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Wow. See, there was no king, and so the people were governing themselves morally, just doing what they felt was right. And a man was needed to be raised up to herald God's truth to God's people. 
And so God raises up a man, a prophet by the name of Samuel. So chapter one of 1 Samuel is that prophet's unlikely backstory. It's very unlikely because the prophet's mom can't actually get pregnant. Now look with me at verse one. 1 Samuel 1, and by the way, just to prepare you, we're going to read all of chapter 1 and most of chapter 2. So just gear up if you have your app uh, or an ESV app on your phone, go ahead and be ready. So verse 1 says, There was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoam, son of Elihu, son of Je- uh, Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. Now I need, a, I need a, a little bit of an applause for that, getting through that one. Okay, no, don't. uh, Verse 2, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah... He gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. All right, if I can have your attention, a lot to cover here. First, we learn, we're introduced to a man of the tribe of Ephraim, whose name is Elkanah, and he's called an Ephrathite, okay? Just for the Bible nerds here, that just simply means that he lived in and around Jerusalem, or Bethlehem, rather. He lived in and around Bethlehem, the hilly country that the the, uh, descendants of Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, would live around. Some believe, according to 1 Chronicles chapter 6, that that ancestor, Zuf, uh, was, a, was of the tribe of Levi. So that means they might be the, the tribe of, of Levites, the ones who were set aside, set apart for uh, the priestly duties. And that might be important later in our sermon. Well, we learn that this man, Elkanah, has two wives. We can all admit that's a problem, okay? Uh, the Bible does not approve of polygamy even though it describes marriages in the Old Testament being polygamous. Just because the New York Times mentions a crime and a criminal does not mean the New York Times is approving of the criminal act, right? So God never approves of the practice of polygamy, but in the law of Moses, he tacitly condemns it. And in the New Testament, we have multiple clear passages that forbid polygamy, lest someone in our culture today, and there are some, who would say, well, the Bible has polygamy, so I can be in a polyamorous relationship that is never okay for a Christian. And though it may have been life in the ancient world, the Bible never paints it in a favorable light, but exposes it with all of its strife and trouble. And here we have another example of that. And I love that the Bible doesn't try to sugarcoat or high gloss the lives of the patriarchs and the kings. You get all of the gory details in real life, in real light. Uh, all the shortcomings, all the disgrace. So here's this guy, Elkanah, and he's already playing with a bad hand, right? Now, don't miss the irony of verse 3. This polygamous man every year goes and worships and makes sacrifices at the tabernacle at Shiloh. He would have gone every year with his family annually. They would eat a ceremonial meal together, and apparently Penina, his wife, and her children would receive a, a large feast from him But Hannah would receive double, double the feast, even though she had no children. And verse 5 explains why. It says, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So her husband is trying to offset her suffering, her pain, her anxious turmoil, and her sorrow 
the same turmoil and sorrow that every woman has experienced who is unable to conceive or who through miscarriage has not been able to give birth to a child. So this suffering has partly endeared Elkanah to Hannah. But verse 6 tells us that there's more going on. Notice verse 6. It says, And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? So if it's not bad enough that you're infertile, now the other wife is rubbing it in her face. She's provoking her. And yet we read here from the text in two different places that this was not something that Hannah did wrong. This was the fact that Yahweh had closed her womb. And this is every year after year. Oh, look at the calendar. It's time to go up to worship. And I know what's coming on the way up. I'm going to be mocked as Panina brings all of her children to the feast and they all take their places and they're all distributed their food. And here I am alone. And Elkanah brings the food double portion to her. Now, let me just pause here for a minute. Husbands, this, this is a very bad uh, attempt. This is textbook bad husband here right, where he thinks food will solve the problem. My wife's troubled, I'll just give her more food, right? Or he's asking her questions, like, why are you crying? That's just never a question you want to ask your wife. Why are you crying? And, and then uh, the last question is, aren't I more to you? Like, isn't our marriage, aren't I a great husband even though you're suffering? I should be enough. <laughs> it's just textbook bad decision. So uh, look what happens next. It says in verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now, I told you we're going to look at three aspects of Hannah, and normally we leave our application to the end of the sermon after we've studied the text, but today I want to kind of do a running commentary as we study this and see these three attributes that kind of bubble up to the surface through um, these verses. So the first thing that I want to point out is notice with me, number one, Hannah's determination. Notice her condition. They've come many, many miles to worship, to make sacrifices, and as people are sitting down gorging themselves, eating and drinking and celebrating. Hannah is distressed. And it might not be in the Hebrew, but I would say she began to ugly cry. So listen, there is nothing more distressing, is there, than being in a crowd of people who are all celebrating. They're all excited. They're all exulting. And you have some terrible news or you're going through a time of sorrow. Everyone around is excited at the birth announcement. And you're sitting publicly hearing about it, and you can't conceive. Uh, and I think that that's one reason why we have to be those who practice in the New Testament, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Hannah, at this point, could have easily turned her agony into an accusation. She could have turned her distress into disparagement. She could have turned her affliction into animosity against God. But instead, what does she do? She makes a vow. 
Now, guys, time does not permit for us to talk about how we are people of grace. And as people of grace, we don't need to make these impressive extra biblical vows to show God how awesome we are, right? We, I just, we don't have time to go into that. I don't want that to be the flavor that's in your mouth today from this sermon. Um, to be sure, many believers throughout time have made promises or they've made goals, and those are great. Those can be helpful to make goals spiritually, but that's not the point I want to make here. I want to emphasize that Hannah had determined in her heart that she would practice lament and she would practice sacrifice in her suffering. Now, we've just sang a few songs of lament, and we've studied this previously, but what is lament? Lament is when we take our honest complaints, our fears, our sorrows, our trouble, our loss, and we bring that not against God, but to God. You see the difference? We don't necessarily have to get the words out perfectly. This is not, lament is not a polished prayer. L lament is where we just get it out. We get it out, we leave our complaints for God to handle, but we don't just stay there. We also rise up and we're willing to trust him. We're willing to, in faith, do whatever he directs us to do. Believing and calling back to mind, I've said this before, God's creditworthiness, his credit score of faithfulness. We call to mind, he's always been faithful to me in the past, so why am I doubting him again? I trust him in this difficulty. So we see Hannah doing that, and the Lord may have directed her, we don't know, to set her son aside later for God's service, and that's why she makes the vow. We don't know that. But as a mother, when I read about Hannah here making this vow, I go, man, this is a woman, this is a follower of God with great determination. She is determined to trust God even in her loss. Now, moms, if I just want to address you, and this is for all Christians, but we're, we're celebrating Mother's Day today. So, so moms, it takes, as you know, great determination to be a mother. And if you're a young mom, spoiler alert, you're going to need an extra serving of determination when it comes to faithful biblical parenting. It's going to take determination to intentionally raise your children, not accidentally, but intentionally raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Why? Because the world around us is constantly screaming a contrary message that says your family to your children as they get older, your family's old-fashioned, your family's outdated, your family is staunch. And you know what? I looked up a synonym for staunch, and some synonyms include trustworthy, sound, and steadfast. So that's fine. I I'll take that one. Yeah, I'm staunch. See, it's going to take determination to stay consistent with your discipline. And, and sadly, many young moms, many young parents will waffle based on the whims of their children. They'll say no one minute, but then after being browbeaten, okay, fine. And that's what we would call a child-directed home. Biblically, we believe the Bible commands us to be a parent-directed home, where the parent directs the home with love, with discipline, with the scriptures, with prayer, and then the children submit to and honor the parents as unto the Lord. And so what does that mean? That means we can't just by default have kids that are godly. It means we have to set the tone. We have to demonstrate that and be determined that my yes is yes, my no is no, even yes at the threat of a temper tantrum. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing more dangerous or more powerful. The most powerful creature in the world is a two-year-old who has lost their blankie. I get it. I get it. But we must be determined. Now, let's read on. Verse 12 says, As she continued praying before the Lord, notice this determined prayer, continued prayer, 
Eli observed her mouth. This is the priest. He's kind of noticing her. Verse 13, Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So notice with me, Eli the priest mistakes her behavior, her prayer for drunkenness. He's thinking she's murmuring with her lips after a few too many. But she corrects him and says, no, no, no. I'm putting all of my anxiety and all of my vexation in God's hands. So if you would, second application point, second thing that we see Hannah doing here, and this is an application for moms for all of us, and that is notice with me Hannah's devotion. First, her determination. Secondly, here, her devotion. I think it's really telling to me that Eli the priest mistakes a worshiper for drunkenness. That shows you the spiritual state of the people. It's not surprising. Here's another person coming to worship and they're drunk. In fact, his two sons, we learn later in Samuel, uh, are incredibly corrupt and are not noble. And so this is a, a sad spiritual state of being for the people at that time. But Hannah, in contrast to what Eli is, is imagining, no, she's not She's not relieving her troubles with spirits. She is a woman who's troubled in spirit. She's not pouring out libations. She's pouring out her soul. And though great, uh, greatly anxious and vexed, what does she do? She stays faithful to Yahweh and generous toward others. Year after year after year, after unanswered prayer after unanswered prayer, Hannah has come with her husband to continue to worship the Lord and to continue to make sacrifices. This whole time, she's been mistreated by this second wife. But we don't read in the text any contempt that she had for her, any contempt she had for her husband. In fact, when mistaken for a drunk, imagine that you're, you're just, you're pouring out in prayer and someone comes up and says, you've had a few too many. Her response back to Eli is respect uh, and it's grace. And, and I love how she describes her prayer as pouring out my soul before the Lord. What a great display. What a great picture of what my agonizing, persistent, personal prayer should look like. I don't know about you, but I don't know if I can describe my prayers as just pouring out my soul before the Lord. It's more like a trickle. I had a trickle this Monday. Not a lot of pouring out. And what we lack today in the church, one of the greatest things we lack is this sort of soul-wrenching reliance upon God. Can that be said of you, that you pour your soul out before the Lord? Well, notice verse 11. We skipped over it for a moment, but notice that in prayer and lament, Hannah makes a vow. Uh, this is what's known as a Nazarite vow. And number six, you can jot that down and read it later, describes what a Nazarite vow uh, entailed. First of all, the Nazarite was to practice abstinence from anything that came from the grapevine. So no grapes, no raisins, no wine. You were to be separated from the flesh, and that was one aspect of it. But secondly, the Nazarite was not to shave his head. 
And that long locks that he carried communicated to everyone around him, hey, I'm devoted to the Lord. I'm devoted. But not only that, the Nazarite was not to even be near a dead body. So he couldn't mourn for the dead. He couldn't be near death. And that spoke of separation from corruption. All of that together uh, is powerful enough, but the Nazarite vow was rarely performed on a child from birth. There's only two that I know of in the, in the whole scripture, and that's Samson, uh, whose parents set him apart, and then here with Samuel. Well, some would argue, like we began, that Hannah's family, Elkanah's family, had descended from the tribe of Levi. And we know that those who were 30 to 50 years old in the tribe of Levi were set apart already, consecrated to be the priests in the tabernacle or later in the temple. So if that's true, then this is kind of a double devotion, a double consecration, a double offering. She's offering, not just when he's older, but at his very birth, offering her child who already belongs to God back to God, even from birth. That shows you, right, the devotion that this woman had to the Lord. She was willing to trust God with her infertility, and she was willing to trust God with her children who were born. And she didn't allow her, the depth of her suffering to rob her of her intimacy with God. She trusted God even if he would not open her womb. Now notice that when Eli kind of gives her a sort of a blessing, he says, the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made him. Uh, she responds humbly. I love this. She responds humbly to him, and then she goes and eats. And her countenance like immediately changes, and suddenly she has an appetite. Well, what changed here? Nothing really magical happened. What changed? Well, like Abraham, like Sarah, she believed the promise of God and the God of promise. And she had faith that immediately impacted her behavior. She put her trust in God. You could say it this way. She put her trust in God, and then she went out and had lunch. She's willing to say, my, what I believe about God is now going to affect how I live my life. I'm not going to be bound up in anxiety. I'm going to live for him. I love how often this woman refers to herself as the servant of the Lord or your servant. This is a woman devoted to the Lord. Now, notice what happens next, verse 19. It says, They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and Yahweh remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she, for she said, I have asked for him from Yahweh. Now, verse 19 has, at the end of it, a couple words that may seem a little confusing. And the Bible is using what's called anthropomorphic language. And often we'll do that to try to explain God's ways. We'll use a human kind of illustration or description to explain God's behavior in a way that seems to make it understandable. So it's using language to connect an idea. So when the Bible says that God hides us in the shelter of his wings, does anyone here actually believe that God has feathers? Obviously not. But that's a, that we're using that language to say, yeah, God, like, a, like a, a chicken with wings covering its young or a bird covering its young, that is how God, I'm hiding in the shelter of his wings. It's just a phrase we use. It's language we use to connect an idea. So when we read that God remembered her, that's a way that we're using human language to kind of make sense of God's ways. That does not mean God had forgotten her, like he's checking his to-do list. What did I forget today? I knew I was supposed to remember. Oh, that's right, Hannah. I remember Hannah and what I was supposed to do. That's not the idea. What it means is that he acted in a way that was consistent with his character 
and he turned to grace her with favor and attention. He remembered Hannah. All right, we'll read on verse 21. It says, The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. Now she's pregnant. For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, and this is a great statement, husbands, do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. He encourages her, hey, do what seems best to you, but it needs to honor the word of God. Great response. He's kind of getting it now. He's, he's learning. But notice Hannah's devotion to the Lord. It seems to greatly exceed even her husband's. Remember, he goes every year to offer a lamb. Well, she's going this year to offer her son. Look at the rest of verse 23. It says, So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, the tabernacle. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed. You can just see her hand on both of his shoulders. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. I don't know if that's sunk in yet, but she said, Lord, if you would grant me this child, I will give him to you to be used for your service for the rest of your life. No longer living with her. She's willing to give him over to a man who had raised his own sons very poorly for this child to be used of God in the temple or in the tabernacle. So Hannah's devotion to God completely changed the life of her son. He would grow up, Samuel would grow up to be the one who would anoint the future king, the great future king of Israel, King David. Now, moms, let me turn our attention to you and what it means to have devotion. You may not be able to balance the checkbook perfectly, or keep the house as clean as Instagram wants to believe it is, or the mom who never loses her temper. But in the end, it's not how amazing your pot roast is that will eternally impact your children. No, it's your devotion to the Lord. Tim Challies wrote a book called Devoted. And in that book, he lists the different moms in church history who have had a radical impact just in their devotion to the Lord uh, in the lives of their children. I can say confidently today, even if my mom's not watching the service online right now, I can say confidently that as I was running away at 17, 18 in absolute rebellion to God, it was my mom's prayer. It was her little notes with scripture that, that eventually God used by his spirit to draw my wayward heart from rebellion to repentance. And you and I, we can look back at our moms and say, there's been a lot of failure. But one thing we can, many of us can say, that's what I ultimately impacted me, we can see someone who steadfastly trusts Christ no matter what they suffer. And so we need moms like that, moms who are devoted to Christ, moms who care more about pouring out their soul to the Lord than pouring out their frustrations on Facebook. Now, we get a glimpse of Hannah's prayer in chapter 2. And I want to read it through together and see one third aspect about Hannah here that is pretty significant. Notice with me her prayer, verse 1, chapter 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. 
I wonder who this next part is for. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there's none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And then verse 11, at the end of her prayer, it says, Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering. Samuel ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Now, this is a powerful prayer, and I'd love for you to jot down this third attribute of Hannah, and that is number three, Hannah's doctrine. I don't know if you caught this, but notice with me on the screen what Hannah believed about God and prayed in her prayer. She, ex- she kind of pointed out that Yahweh is exalted, that Yahweh saves, that he's holy, that he's sui generis, a Latin phrase that just means he's, he's distinct and set apart from all other things. There is no one like him. He's the rock. He's all-knowing. He's sovereign over life and death. Not only that, but he's sovereign over riches and poverty. He's, in fact, sovereign over all of creation. He sees and he blesses the poor. He guards the righteous. He judges the wicked, and he strengthens and blesses his people. Not only did Hannah know about the Nazarite vow, which means she knew and read the Pentateuch, but more than that, she had a well-formed understanding biblically of who God is. Her doctrine, listen, was not something she carried around like a weapon to bludgeon people who disagreed with her. No, she was still peaceable and kind and generous. Her her doctrine was not mere head knowledge as she touted facts and figures. No, she was one who poured out her soul to God and she was willing in an active way to offer her one and only son back to God as a sacrifice. Hannah's doctrine affected her prayer and she uses biblically accurate terminology to describe God. In fact, in verse 10, This is the first place many scholars believe the Messiah is directly mentioned in Scripture, the anointed. Uh, There's no king in Israel at this point, and yet she says, Yahweh will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Many people believe that Hannah's solid prayer has the distinct privilege of being quoted in the New Testament uh, as a foreshadowing of Jesus the Messiah. We have this in Luke chapter 1. It says in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and, here it is, has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. We know the horn of salvation was Jesus, the anointed one. So follow me. Hannah's doctrine was rooted in what the Bible says about God. So she didn't let her awful circumstances dictate her worship. She didn't allow the sinful, prevalent foolishness of the day to cause her to do what was 
right in her own eyes. She wanted her beliefs to be informed not by astrology, not by animism, not by popular opinion, but by the word of God. So let me just speak to the moms for a minute. Moms, you have lots of places to turn to for advice, lots of options. These options are saying, implement my wisdom so you can build your life to mimic the average Netflix wisdom, or you could get counsel from your single unsafe friends, or worse, let me read books that enhance my personality, my sexuality, or worse, my spirituality. But if those books aren't rooted in scripture, then by default, they're rooted in this world. And many women, sadly, have gained the world only to forfeit their soul. You see, the mom who seeks to grow in God's word is a mom who's helping direct her children's curiosity and questions about life and about God. She's directing those questions to the truth of Scripture. The mother who seeks to grow in God's word is a mom who is practicing Jude verse 3 to contend earnestly for the faith by transmitting that faith to her children. The mother who seeks to grow in God's word is a mom who, who not only prays doctrinally rich prayers, she also, she also sings doctrinally rich songs. And yes, she even models doctrinally rich love to her husband, even as the kids are grossed out by their affection. You see, though Hannah has determination, she has devotion, she has great doctrine. There's one more important thing in this text, a fourth idea that has actually nothing to do with Hannah. And that is number four, God's domain. You see, as Hannah understood and as the writer of 1 Samuel understood, it was God who was sovereign. We hear multiple times, God closed her womb and therefore God had the authority to open it. I mean, don't we find it interesting that all three of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all married women who could not conceive? Like, was that an oversight on God's part? Like, you know, I'm trying to start a new nation and everyone keeps marrying barren women. I just don't understand. <laughs> Maybe pick the wrong people. No. Or was that the hand of God orchestrating the circumstances of their lives so he would receive the greater glory? Not, man, that woman is fertile. No, she's completely infertile. And yet God receives all the glory. Now, I want to be careful here to state that God may not choose to open the womb of a devout, determined, and doctrinally accurate wife. You can pray the most genuine, heartfelt, soul-wrenching prayers, go every year to make sacrifices, but that does not mean that God owes you the chance to bear children. No, we don't give God glory only when he provides for us, even in our lack, especially in our lack. We give him glory and gratitude, and we trust in his plan even when it doesn't make fair, and especially when it doesn't make sense. So the mom who understands, follow me here, the mom who understands what is in her domain and what is in God's domain understands what it means to trust the sovereignty of God. She understands, I can't protect my children from everything. She understands, I can't be the Holy Spirit and his voice for my children. She understands, I can't fix all of their adult problems. She understands, I can't sovereignly direct my children, but I can trust that God does have sovereign grace, and he will direct them. So Hannah, saying goodbye to her son Samuel, trusted not only her barrenness, but also her newly born healthy son. She trusted what many moms still haven't come to understand, and that is that our womb 
and that our children are ultimately in the hands of God. Hannah gives us a wonderful example that's not only for moms, it's for all of us as followers of God to see her devotion, her determination, and her doctrinally rich, um, sound faith that encourages us to trust him even when God doesn't seem to answer our prayers. She gives us a wonderful example of a follower of God who's willing to entrust their children to God even when they're out of our direct control. And she reminds us that, hey, our prayers matter. And what we believe in our prayers and what we actually pray makes a difference. But I just want to time out here for a minute. I don't want you today to hear what I'm saying and misread me and say, okay, so I think I know what you're saying. You're saying I need to be more determined, more devoted, and I need to fix my, my theology. Uh, so, that's what you're, so I need to be a better mom and... Pastors tell me I need to go to the resource center and buy a, a good book. Well, yeah, sure, that's a good idea. Go buy a book, yes and amen. But this is not about trying harder, doing better. I want to encourage you moms and Christians today. We're being sanctified by the Spirit of God, and there's much work to do, isn't there? You know me. There's a lot of sanctifying to be done. I know you. There's a lot of sanctifying to be done. And yet, in, in the midst of the Spirit's work in our life, we, we need to not give up and just try in our own strength. Like, I'm just going to give up and, and, and get discouraged, or I'm just going to try to do this in my own strength. No, we yield to the Spirit's work, and we allow the grace of God to comfort us, to encourage us, and to strengthen us as we trust Him. So moms, because it's Mother's Day, I just want to encourage you this morning that even if your kids are estranged from you, or they've failed in multiple ways. Maybe they're not walking with Christ today. Maybe for some of you, they've passed from life to death. I want to remind you this morning, you have all that you need. You have a gracious Savior. You have a dear friend in Christ. For those of you who have conceived and you've given birth to children, man, you've been stewarded with such a gracious gift. And I want to encourage you to do what Hannah did, and I want to encourage you to do what Mary did. Two moms who sacrificed their sons, gave them over to the hand of God. I want to encourage you as well to lay your... We do that with baby dedications. It's kind of a symbolic thing. But, uh, but to be reminded again today that these kids belong to God and to trust them to God's gracious care. Even when you're not determined, when you're not devoted and your doctrine's still lacking. God is a gracious covenant-keeping God, and he sees your failure, and today he loves you anyway. For those of you who have not conceived, or you've suffered the loss of, many of you have a loss through uh, losing your child. Maybe it was a stillborn. Uh, maybe you attempted to have, uh, be pregnant, and you were unable, uh, and you've just lacked. I just want to encourage you today. Your lack does not diminish the goodness of God. You see, this is where we learn to practice the gift of lament, not complaining about God, but to him. We take our true concerns, in this case for you, more than any other situation, you're realizing this is a matter of life and death. And so this is very real. This is very raw. It's not polished. It's not sanitized. There's nothing floral about it. You bring your complaints, not at God, but to him. And you of all people can understand what it's like to throw yourself on your face spiritually, pouring out your soul to him, weeping and mourning and grieving, but in the end, submitting 
your confusion, your questions, and even your infertility to the God who hears. So I want to encourage you today, wherever you're at, for, for every Christian here, for the dad who's here visiting and you brought mom, for the son who's showing up being a good son to support mom on Mother's Day. Listen, we want all of you to know the gospel. Micah, Pastor Micah talked about it at the beginning, but you in your natural state are dead in trespasses and sins. You are alienated from God. You're at enmity with him. Today you are in hostility against God, and we don't want you to stay in that state. Christ has come to pay the price for your sin. He has died in your place, and you must repent of your sin and trust Christ for your eternal salvation. Coming here being a good son or being a good husband, being a good mom does not save you. Only Christ alone and the work that he has accomplished for you will save you. So live your life fully upon the work of Christ and not in your own spirituality, your own religious strength. Today, give your heart and life and soul and mind and all to Christ. And if you don't know what that means, then see me or Pastor Micah afterwards. We'd love to share the gospel more intimately with you and pray with you and give you the hope of eternal life. So moms, we love you. We celebrate you. We thank you. We thank you for your doctrine, how you've taught us well. Uh, We thank you for your devotion to Christ and how even when you haven't gotten it perfect, you've modeled what it means to um, surrender and trust the gospel. And we thank you for your determination to discipline us when we needed it. We're going to close this morning. I think it's appropriate to close with a a poem. Uh, And so uh, we're going to recite this poem and then we'll uh, close with song. So this poem is called A Mother's Love. It says this, a mother's love is something that no one can explain. It's made of deep devotion and of sacrifice and pain. It is endless and unselfish and enduring come what may, for nothing can destroy it or take that love away. It is patient and forgiving when all others are forsaken, and it never fails or falters even though the heart is breaking. It believes beyond believing when the world around condemns, and it glows with all the beauty of the rarest, brightest gems. It is far beyond defining. It defies all explanation, and it still remains a secret like the mysteries of creation. A many-splendored miracle men cannot understand, and another wondrous evidence of God's tender, guiding hand. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for our moms today. We thank you for the example of Hannah. Lord, may we not try more in our own strength to produce these things, but may we more fall at your feet and acknowledge we need the grace of God, the gospel of God, the spirit of God uh, to animate us, to equip us, to work in us and through us. Lord, I pray for each mom here who is infertile, who has suffered the loss of miscarriage, that you'd bring comfort and strength and hope. Lord, I pray, Lord, for those moms who have lost a child, who is uh, maybe an adult, they've lost them to uh, death. Lord, we pray for encouragement, for comfort. Lord, that you would come around them. Lord, we pray for those who have children who have gone wayward. Lord, that you draw those sons and daughters back to you. If there's anyone here in a, in a kind of a broken relationship with their own mom or their children, Lord, would you restore those relationships by the gospel? Lord, help us maybe to initiate that grace and love. But Lord, this morning, all of us can acknowledge we want to build our lives upon your word. So Lord, help us, we pray. We thank you, we love you, and as we're reminded again today of your goodness, we celebrate the work of Christ who is given for our righteousness, for our redemption, for our hope. Thank you for Jesus, and this morning we celebrate and worship him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. 
Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.